time for Healthy Talk Radio. By the power vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. <gasps> Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Now, the woman who's changing the face of health care each and every day. That's the fact, Jack! Here's Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, it doesn't bode well for the patients of the future. Now, according to a new doctor poll, 50% of doctors between the ages of 50 and 65 plan to end their clinical practice in the next one to three years, and uh, they believe that their younger counterparts don't have the work ethic they do. Doesn't bode well. Well, speaking for that, about that, the statistics are just sobering. We don't have to go to the hospital to end up with methicillin-resistant staph aureus, bugs that don't respond to drugs. And with the, num- with the numbers that over 300,000 people treated for MRSA, one in every 20 died from the infections, what do you need to know? about keeping those bad bugs at bay. We'll delve into it. We invite you to go to the phone, pick it up, join us at 1-800-307-3002 right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. It has undergone recent scrutiny in the medical literature, and while some studies indicate stretching doesn't make a difference, an associate professor of kinesiology at Louisiana State University indicates that he thinks it does because his study found that a regular stretching program enhances performance, makes you stronger, and increases your endurance, that it's more than just increased range of motion. And what they found, amazingly, is that some people had some really fantastic results when it came to stretching. And also a very smart idea for people who are traveling um, to to really get some stretching in. In fact, there's a number of long-haul airline carriers that actually uh, offer you little tapes about yoga and stretching in your seats because it can make a difference, if not only in um, just your comfort level. Now, if Louisiana State researchers are accurate, it can enhance your performance, make you stronger, increase your endurance. A little stretching, please. Well, it appears in this week's uh, online American Journal of Preventive Medicine, all about having another colonoscopy. And for anybody who has had a colonoscopy, we don't often look forward to future colonoscopies. Well, now, what we find amazingly is that the recommendation to come in and have a follow-up colonoscopy didn't match the published guidelines 60% of the time. What are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that patients were recommended to come back and have a repeat colonoscopy at, quote, an excessively short interval, unquote, when the standard practice is to repeat those colonoscopies um, about 7.8 years after the initial one or um, uh, about five years 
when they discover some polyps to repeat that. But that's not what we find. The current guidelines advise repeating colonoscopies 10 years later after a normal examination. That's when you should think about a second colonoscopy. And five years if uh, polyps were found. So they're finding that the medical profession often repeats colonoscopy too soon. So if you're not looking forward to a repeat colonoscopy, you may want to download this information. It came from the American Journal of Preventive Medicine this week. You'll find it at our website, healthytalkradio.com. Virginia Commonwealth University researchers indicating that colonoscopies are repeated at, quote, excessively short intervals when the science is clear that they should be repeated if it's a normal examination on the previous one in another 10 years or 5 years if a polyp is found. Well, it's that time of the year when many parents uh, uh, indicate that their children will go berserk from the candy that they're eating. Now, the evidence seeming to suggest that there's other factors other than just the sugar, including the caffeine in sodas and candy, that may be the culprit behind sudden mood swings. If you take a look at the great work from the Feingold Association, they've got a wealth of information indicating that some of those preservatives and colorings do affect your child's behavior So be prepared, because it's most likely not to be a mellow trick-or-treat with all that candy afoot. Well, it was a sobering article on the front page of today's New York Times, Chinese chemicals flow unchecked to the marketplace, that a recent symposium, the Honor International Farm Tech Symposium, had a number of Chinese suppliers of raw materials when it comes to prescription drugs, even though that these companies were not licensed to sell these drug ingredients. So with the concern these days about contaminated pet food, what's going on with our food, we are now finding that uh, just days before this uh, Milan Italy trade show where we saw all these Chinese companies um, that were offering ingredients for pharmaceuticals that were less than high quality. How many of our products have forever been tainted because of the fact that uh, you know we have been pretty lax. We're not like Japan where they test you know all foods. We test a very small portion of foods and and drug ingredients with unregulated Chinese chemicals flowing onto the world drug market, according to today's New York Times. Well, it's got a lot of lawmakers seeing red. The use of carbon dioxide to keep meat looking um, a little redder, a little fresher, much longer than meat not subjected to this gas. And they say consumers who consider the color when picking the meat will be fooled into buying older meat or spoiled meat, not smelling that trouble until they open the package at home. In fact, the Food and Drug Administration has um, uh, initiated action to ban this practice of treating packaged meat with carbon dioxide 
so it retains a, a, a redder color, which leaves the consumer with the so-called misconception here that it is very fresh meat when it may not be so. So with the revelation that, uh, gee, lots, I mean, better than 60% of our case-ready fresh meats are treated in this fashion, many regulators are saying it's time to phase out that practice because consumers are there unaware when it comes to making an informed decision about the very foods they're eating. Well, it's the World Cancer Research Fund carrying out the largest ever inquiry into lifestyle and cancer, issuing several very stark recommendations that you should not gain weight as an adult if you want to seriously cut your risk of cancer. You should avoid sugary drinks and alcohol, not eat bacon or ham, because they say that your body mass index is an important uh, factor when it comes to your risk of cancer, that if your body mass index is between 18 and 25, that's the healthy range to keep cancer at bay. We now think that two-thirds of cancer cases are related to lifestyle, according to the World Cancer Research Fund, and most people pretty oblivious to the lifestyle factors, the choices that they make each and every day that can make a difference. We know that going organic certainly can make a difference because any chemical, including pesticides, can have an effect on our our hormones, effect on our bodies. And your weight does make a difference as well. Don't gain weight as an adult. Don't eat bacon or ham. Avoid sugary drinks, according to the World Cancer Research Fund. Uh, their stark recommendations when it comes to the largest ever inquiry into lifestyle and cancer. Well, speaking of um, cancer, very interesting study out of the University of Texas taking a look at a derivative of vitamin A and former smokers' risk of lung cancer. We'll take it up when we return. We'll also talk about tart cherries reducing the risk of type 2 diabetes. And we'll also talk about keeping those bad bugs at bay. All that and more, we invite you to join us toll-free, no matter where you're listening to us, 1-800-307-3002, 1-800-307-3002, Talk Radio. You're listening to Healthy Talk Radio, worldwide, whenever and wherever you need us, at HealthyTalkRadio.com. Now, more with America's favorite healthcare consumer, Deborah Ray. We're going to be talking today about those bad bugs, those MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus bugs that are no longer just in our hospitals. They're in our locker rooms. They are in many common um, consumer public situations. So how do we keep them at bay? Before we delve into that, we were talking about um, what is published in the current Journal of National Cancer Institute by the University of Texas. They took a look at the fact that tobacco smoking, accounts for 90% of the attributable risk for lung cancer. But even after people give up smoking, uh, that risk remains elevated. The medical profession has failed to make the case that uh, screening using the ultra-fast, rapid 
lung CT scans can catch that lung cancer in time. So what do we do? Um, MD Anderson Cancer Center there at the University of Texas focused on people who were once heavy smokers but who had quit the habit. Good, but their risk of lung cancer remained still high. They received a three-month treatment combining a form of vitamin A, a derivative of vitamin A called retinoic acid, R-E-T-I-N-O-I-C, retinoic acid, along with vitamin E or a placebo. Then at the end of the therapy, they took a look, actually did lung biopsies to take a look at a telltale chemical biomarker of cancer in the lung cells. What they found was amazing. They found decreased proliferation of these lung cells. Um, it actually affect the, the cell growth in terms of the nutrient approach. Uh, we know that anything that we can do to, to reduce our risk of cancer, reducing our exposure to certain chemicals, stopping smoking, uh, clean food and water, optimizing our nutrition, hopefully makes a difference. And perhaps some uh, uh, healthy smokers of the future should quit and consider some of these therapy if the research weighs out. Well, speaking of uh, cutting our risk, many people have marveled at the research behind cherries. University of Michigan, in particular, have focused on what are the naturally occurring proanthocyanidins, very unique polyphenols that we find in tart cherries that have amazing anti-inflammatory properties. In fact, previous research from the University of Michigan has found that tart cherries, a couple of them a day, a couple tablespoons, uh, or tart cherry juice, has an amazing ability, one, to improve your body's uh, uh, stores of melatonin, Cherries are nature's richest source of melatonin, but also act as a natural anti-inflammatory agent. Well, the University of Michigan has put this to the test. In fact, a cardiac surgeon has now said cherries are powerful plant pigments packed with them called these anthocyanidins. They give tart cherries their dark red color, and he believes, Dr. Stephen Bowling at the University of Michigan, that tart cherries can lower blood sugar, lower insulin levels, reduce the risk of metabolic syndrome or prediabetes. You could consume the whole tart cherries. In this case, they gave powdered whole tart cherries to laboratory animals and found cherries one of the richest sources of antioxidants and perhaps a real boon in helping to reduce the risk of pre-diabetes progressing to full-blown diabetes, reducing the risk factor because it reduces inflammation, lowers blood sugar, and lowers insulin levels as well. Oh, by the way, if you've got some arthritis or gout, <laughs> the studies show it'll help that as well. Well, it's the American Institute for Cancer Research and the World Cancer Research Fund offering 10 recommendations for cancer prevention. They believe that body fat is linked to six types of cancer. Mouth, pharynx, larynx, esophagus, colon, and liver. 
and that we should uh, consume no more than two alcoholic drinks a day for men, one for women, um, that even small amounts of alcohol can raise your risk of cancer. Additionally, uh, limiting salt intakes, vitamins and minerals can make a difference when it comes to cancer. The 517-page report is available at dietandcancerreport.org with body fat now linked to six types of cancer. And oh, by the way, it's where you carry that weight. That weight around your middle makes the difference. What's well, a new study published in the journal Science indicating that 10,000 chemicals currently on the market need to be retested for possible toxicity. That these 10,000 chemicals are part of persistent organic pollutants that stay in the environment and they concentrate in the body of animals and you and me. So that accumulation test most often used, the KOW test, measuring how soluble a chemical is in fat as opposed to water, has now been replaced in many research scientists' mind with a a better marker. The KOA test has a better measure of of how our bodies accumulate these toxins. So they're now saying that the old markers, the KOW test, the solubility in fat test, should be replaced by the newer test, how we accumulate these toxins, retesting them for human safety and with the revelation that we are exposed to some 75,000 chemicals on a daily basis. No small wonder the front page of today's USA Today is talking about everywhere chemicals in plastics are beginning to uh, alarm parents that we are seeing many uh, bisphenol A's, phthalates in our children's tissues, even in cord blood, we know that these chemicals are possibly carcinogenic and certainly affect our children's reproductive health. So we're now finding uh, parents are willing to spend record amounts of money to, for example, purchase baby bottles from Israel that are phthalate-free and bisphenol-free. That uh, this company is saying that uh, these plastic baby bottles, especially made in Israel, that have none of these chemicals in them, are so popular they can't keep them uh, on the store shelves. They're continuing on back order. But an in-depth article on the, on the lifestyle section of today's USA Today is is talking about um, that whether it's shampoo, uh, whether it's deodorant, whether it's eyeshadow, whether it's your nail polish. These are potential sources of these chemicals that can certainly affect our health, our children's health, the effect of the environment. And I urge everybody to to get a copy of Safe Shoppers Bible, penned by a noted epidemiologist and educator, Dr. Samuel Epstein, and David Steinman's Safe Shoppers Bible really gives us information about making consumer choices when we buy products to make informed decisions in terms of making better decisions when it comes to our health. Well, it's new information out of cancer.gov focusing on chemotherapy fog. 
One company believes that it has come up with an approach to battle chemo fog and help get cancer patients' minds back on track. It's a software program. It's called CogniFit, C-O-G-N-I-F-I-T, CogniFit, that helps chemotherapy patients exercise their brains to maintain fitness throughout and after chemotherapy. Many patients find this chemo fog long-lasting, so perhaps a little ounce of prevention is key here to fight chemotherapy brain fog. We'll return to talk about those bad bugs. Where are they? How do you keep them at bay? Right here on Healthy Talk Radio. The information presented on Healthy Talk Radio is all well-documented and presented by credentialed guests. It may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but hey, how much do they know about medicine anyway? Bad bugs. They're in the news almost on a daily basis, and uh, the lives that are being claimed are, are sobering indeed. So knowing that we are microbial beings, yes, it's in the medical literature. It was recognized uh, thanks to the pioneering work of Dr. Mechnikoff at the turn of the previous century. So for about a 100 years, we've had this focus that we live among bacteria. In fact, if we take a look at the number of cells in our body, there's more bacteria than there are cells in our body. And amazing statistics arise that uh, even in our mouth, some 700 different species of bacteria. And we tend to think, in fact, we've been culturally conditioned. It came natural. After all, uh, some 50 years ago, medicine's golden age of antibiotics, the first time medicine reliably cured bad bugs, thanks to antibiotics, was launched and it forever changed not only a generation of medicine but you and me as healthcare consumers as well because we thought that bugs were bad and killing those bugs using antibiotics or keeping them at bay using antibacterial agents was important after all we didn't want the bad bacteria to take over and it, certainly it's, it's not out of place. We don't want the bad ba- bugs to take over. But the fallacy to that approach that has now come home to roost is that we are never smarter than those bugs. Those bugs continue to adapt and mutate. And we find dizzying amounts of antibiotic resistance among bacteria these days. And it used to be just relegated to the walls of hospitals where patients who were very vulnerable might contract hospital-acquired infections. They're also known as nocosomial, N-O-C-O-S-O-M-I-A-L infections, nocosomial infections, And we tended not to think, because after all, gee, the vast majority of us, you know, lived our lives, never came in contact with these bugs inside hospital walls. Well, all of a sudden, we found 
some alarming statistics coming to light that each year in this country there are over 2 million, in fact 2.1 million hospital-acquired infections to be specific. And of these, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 106,000 people die every year, die every year, due to hospital-acquired infections. Situations where the bugs no longer respond to even our strongest drugs, vancomycin, some of the other broad-spectrum, first-line antibiotics approaches, even intravenously, were no longer useful against these antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And now our nation's schools and locker rooms, even in the grocery store, go on a cruise ship recently, there is this single-minded, obsessive focus on bugs. So, so what do we learn from that? We learn, one, with the Agency for Healthcare uh, Research and Quality, that the statistics are sobering. That, yes, indeed, for the last uh, complete year tabulated, 2005, 368,000 people were treated for methicillin-resistant staph aureus bugs in U.S. hospitals. That of that number treated, 1 in 20 died from that infection. So run those numbers. We're talking about a lot of people. That why most deaths occurred among our seniors who were vulnerable by virtue of, of their immune system response and people with lower incomes, again, because of lack of access to treatment, lack of, of general overall health factors that certainly affect uh, their vulnerability, that the death rate from methicillin-resistant staph aureus, in other words, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, was 5% higher than the death rate seen for tuberculosis. And in a nation who has spent the last five years of cultural conditioning thinking, got an infection, well, take an antibiotic, got a sore throat, take an antibiotic, got an upper respiratory infection, urinary tract infections, ear infection, take an antibiotic. That is sobering because we now find that for every 100,000 patients hospitalized for MRSA that the government statistics show that 332 Medicare patients per 100,000 were hospitalized for for MRSA versus 184 Medicaid patients versus 29 patients with private insurance versus 43 uninsured patients men were more likely to be infected by MRSA than women MRSA was most common in the South, least common in the North, the East, or Midwest. So what do we need to know about our bodies as microbial beings and methicillin-resistant staph aureus? We certainly don't want our loved ones, our friends, to become the latest statistic when it comes to these superbugs. 
We know that if you are hospitalized, simple hand washing makes a difference. And with the amazing statistics coming out of hospitals these days, that some hospitals are just doing terrific jobs at keeping these infections at bay, there's others where less than half the doctors wash their hands. Because if somebody comes into your room, if you're hospitalized or you're there visiting somebody and you see them pull on gloves and and don't wash their hands, that's a no-no. But that if you educate, you can reach levels of 90% rates of of success in, in, in hand washing that can really make a difference. And it's not just hand washing. Computer keyboards door handles, tourniquets, pens, doctor's neckties, television sets, stethoscopes, telephones, beds, uh, paper, patients' uh, uh, medical charts, toys. All of these surfaces are, are likely to be modes of transition that we can no longer overlook the fact that soap and water makes a difference. Everybody who touches you, touches the patient in that bed, should gently but firmly be asked, did you wash your hands? It does make a difference. And if we take a look at countries where their efforts were to really make a difference, they didn't have the resources that we do in this country to deal with MRSA. We find some amazing programs, including the Netherlands, Search and Destroy. They started screening. In fact, uh, Loyola uh, University Medical Center uh, in Chicago has been has uh, begun doing so as well, screening every incoming patient, screening every staff member to determine who is a carrier for MRSA. In other words, here's a, a healthy individual who's living symbiotically, no, no signs and symptoms of problems, with methicillin-resistant staph aureus bugs. So whether it's a staff member, they should be taking special precautions when it comes to patient contact. If it's a patient, the staff should be taking special uh, considerations, special precautions when it comes to contact because that MRSA that that patient may be harboring, not causing them any ill, or the staff harboring, not causing them any ill. If it's transferred inadvertently by a doctor's necktie to a patient one room down whose immune system is compromised, it can possibly be deadly. The Brits, I mean, here is a system of health care that must be cost-effective. There's just no other way around it in socialized medicine. They have determined that it's the old hospitals with the high ceilings versus the new uh, you know, pressure-controlled uh, sealed hospital rooms, less infections. High ceilings, tall windows, less infections. They actually atomized peroxide, simple peroxide. Got a little atomizer. We see them all, all the time. You ever seen those little aromatherapy diffusers? Well, that can atomize peroxide. That was effective against methicillin-resistant staph aureus. 
11 hospitals are actually using some natural agents which have been shown to be effective against MRSA. At the, the Garlic Center, in fact, uh, University of London started this research. Uh, two physician research scientists there were able to take garlic and stabilize allicin, which why we know it to be an effective antimicrobial agent. In other words, it's effective against bacteria, viruses, and fungus. It was labile. It didn't stay around long enough to be an effective therapeutic agent. They stabilized it in water, and now there are novel preparations in capsule form and in creams and sprays of these stabilized allicin preparations that are effective against MRSA. In fact, there's some 50 case published histories if you go to uh, Alimed, A-L-L-I-M-E-D dot U-S, that you can read about these agents. Dr. Harry Pruce, George Washington University, brilliant research scientist. He has done intriguing research that oregano oil, very viable antimicrobial agent, and the natural ones, the bugs don't develop resistance to as they would an antibiotic drug, a prescription antibiotic. We have found other agents. East uh, Virginia Medical School has done some very interesting research with silver. In fact, um, um, the resident medical expert of this show for many years, Dr. Crow, pioneered the use of silver mesh. Ever see those little copper scrubbers for, for your kitchens? Well, they can do little silver ones. Put them in respirators. Cut the rate of respirator-acquired uh, infections dramatically just by putting these metal agents that repel the growth of bacteria. Bottom line, your body you're the environment in which those bacteria will either flourish or not makes a difference. We talked earlier that there are actually more bacteria than cells of your body. So it's the, you know, the, the bacteria among us. How do you keep the bad bacteria at bay? The unfolding evidence, in fact, of just earlier this month, the scientific meetings of the American College of Gastroenterology indicated it's all about probiotics. Our bodies need a balance of about 85% good to 15% bad bacteria to keep a key balance of digestive, nutritional, and immune health. When we return, we'll talk about um, you know how some of these probiotics are now showing, thanks to the medical literature, just some amazing therapeutic ability when it comes to uh, actually using them, not as just a preventive, you know, the 85% good, you want to have probiotics on hand to the 15% bad bacteria, that what we now see is that these 
good bacteria, the probiotics, the bifida, the acidophilus strains, are actually being used when there are imbalances of bacteria that become pathogenic. In other words, somebody with um, irritable bowel syndrome is probably very likely to have an imbalance of bacteria. Somebody who has antibiotic-induced diarrhea, the good bacteria have been wiped out with the bad. So how do you establish that 85% good to 15% bad bacteria? We'll talk about it on Healthy Talk Radio. A vital part of your daily health regimen. Vitamins, supplements, and Deborah Ray. Our topic today, those bad bugs. They seem to be getting the upper hand in all too many sobering statistics um, that we have one um, uh, in ten Americans um, uh, who are affected by hospital-acquired infections, uh, that we have uh, over 100,000 people die from them. And we were talking about establishing that essential balance of good to bad bacteria. And that's where you and I hold the power. Our lifestyle makes a difference. That we have to recognize the sources of antibiotics among us. Over 50% of antibiotics produced in this country are used in farm animals. When we consume products from these animals, we get antibiotic residues. Because um, they're used so widespread in, in agriculture, we find them in water supply. So it's essential to use some of the time-tested methods of providing an environment in which the good bacteria can flourish. Lots of sugar, <laughs> not particularly good for the good guys. Prebiotics, these are the substrates, thanks to the fermented foods, sauerkraut, active culture yogurts, and kefir, that can provide the environment that's necessary throughout our digestive system for the good bacteria to maintain a balance. Many experts say, gosh, there's just so much evidence that antibiotic residues in our water supply system from the 50% of that produced in farm animals, it's wise to supplement. Variety of, of good quality probiotic supplements. Think twice before wiping out the good as well as the bad bacteria. By that I mean the Food and Drug Administration has indicated that um, antibacterial Agents, when it comes to keeping bad bacteria at bay, actually produce more antibiotic resistance. You and me have made a difference uh, with even food sources. Places like McDonald's, uh, places like some of the, the big distributors of, of farm animal products, chickens have, have moved away from those Raised with antibiotics. If you want to read more, great books on the topic. In fact, now there's a professor of internal medicine, Professor Gary Huffnagel, University of Michigan, with a great book all about probiotics, keeping those bad bugs at bay. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you join us. If you missed anything, 
Join us online. The website HealthyTalkRadio.com posts the day's healthcare news, and you can listen to the show for two weeks. It's archived there. Our thanks to have each and every one of you join us. I'm Deborah Ray reminding you, live long, stay healthy. 